Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today, I've invited the legendary Laurel K. Hamilton to talk about her career writing her much-beloved Anita Blake series. We chat about her deft genre blending and how including horror allowed her to write the sort of mystery she wanted. We also discuss how she broke barriers representing polyamory and BDSM and the important ways her books impacted readers. She was so generous with her time that we chatted for two hours. So the episode dives in without my usual intro and I've pulled sections of our conversation instead of using the full recording. I hope you enjoy it. You can order Laurel's books from my online bookshop, which helps both the podcast as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me today. Now on to the show. Because before we start talking about the paranormal romance thing, let's introduce you and your book. My point was going to be on the paranormal romance because I didn't realize I wrote romance. I I thought it was mysteries with relationships in them and paranormal in them. That's how I thought of them. And then um, early in the books when Anita did not ride off into the sunset with their choice. And when we brought the polyamory in, a lot of the more strict romance readers at the time, because remember, this is, that was Narcissus and Chains. So right. that's been yeah. 12 years ago. So paranormal romance wasn't that, wasn't everywhere. And Polly wasn't everywhere. So. I had some more strict romance people finally tell me that they were mad because I'd broken a rule I didn't know existed. And the mm-hmm. rule was that you have the good guy and the bad guy, and the girl goes back and forth between them, and then she, of course, rides off the sunset with the good guy. And because I hadn't done that, they were upset because that was the rule. And I said, well, I didn't know the rule. I, I didn't know I was breaking because I didn't know it was a rule. Right. And it was just, but it's funny that every, every genre has its tropes. And if you cross genres and you don't know what those tropes are, you can get in trouble with some fans. Well, happily ever after or happily for now is still the strong, the hard and fast rule. But um, and it's funny because there was there's definitely I wanted to talk to you about the polyamory and everything else. And I also have a listener question about that, too, because it all looks so different now. It's all much more inclusive. And that totally works in the genre as long as everyone's happy and it's consent. You know, yeah. <laughs> so. now, uh, when I started it, though, nobody was doing it. Yeah, it was like everybody and so it kind of i have i have i have chopped my way through the wilderness to pave the path for everybody else they're welcome but uh it was just funny that people's reactions caught me off guard because i didn't know what the rule the rules were if we go back and look because again i have i have like a timeline of i wrote even dates down of like when you first published your books and when we start seeing certain things you know in in genre fiction it is interesting so let me back up and yes. and, and yes. say yes. I, I will stop I will stop derailing your your no, organization. No. I do know this is exactly what I want to talk about. And I'm so with the fact that you talked about it means that you're here for that conversation. And I love it because I'm like, oh she wants to talk about that. Yes. Let's start with the book that we're here to talk about, sort of, is Smolder. But really I want to talk about all things Laurel K. Hamilton. <laughs> because oh, 
you just turned in book 30 to your editors in the wee hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. So, and anybody reading book 29, um, which has not come out yet. What is the real, it's March, isn't it? March 20, March 23rd. March 23rd, anyone who finishes it will know that there is absolutely a book that needs to follow this one. And you've turned it in. Um, I did. And so, you know, that's 30, that's 30 books. That's a nice round number to let's reflect on the legacy of, of Laurel K. Hamilton. Um, so for those who don't know, though, because there are people who may not know who, who you are, but maybe know the name or haven't read your books yet, but have seen okay. them. Do you mind introducing who Anita Blake is? And then we'll get into Meredith Gentry in a little bit. My original concept for the Anita Blake series was that it's our world, but if we wake up tomorrow morning and everything that goes bump in the night is real and everybody knows about it and you just have to deal with it. The first book, Guilty Pleasures, starts just uh, about four years after Addison v. Clark, which is the court case that made vampires legal citizens in America. And, I love that touch, by the way. I still think that's genius. <laughs> um, touches like that are actually when I was trying to sell the first book, Guilty Pleasures, is why some editors loved the book but weren't sure what it was. I had some think it was science fiction because of how many concrete details I have in it, because it's an alternate timeline, they said. So yes, um, and Anita is, at the beginning of the series, she is a vampire hunter, a legal executioner, because vampires are too dangerous to go to jail. If they, there's no trial, there's no anything, you hunt them down, you kill them, because they've, by the time they come to the police, they've usually already got a series of bodies behind them. And she raises the dead. That is, that is really her main job at the beginning. She raises zombies for, for historical groups that want to you know, see what really happened in certain times. Uh, a will, you have two wills, so you raise the dead to see which will they really meant, that kind of thing. But you cannot raise a murder victim. If you raise a murder victim, they rise as a violent, flesh-eating, terrorizing zombie, and they will not stop. And killing people to get to the murderer. So you can't raise a murder victim. And in fact, we've had cases where somebody, you have to check your paperwork and make sure they haven't been murdered. We even in, in one of the books, and uh, we even had somebody who died of natural causes, but blamed someone for the stress that killed him. And so he rose as a murderous zombie because he blamed the other person. So Anita Blake was really interesting because she, you, you mentioned the zombies, you mentioned the vampires. I mean, she kind of had everybody going on in there in, in those mm -hmm. books and you know, various kinds of shifters and, and what have you. It wasn't even just like werewolves. It was a wide variety of them. Um, so it was incredibly creative and it was this big world and it was a very sexy world and so that was very appealing to people in the early aughts and it's funny because I spoke with um I had across some crossover episodes with um Sarah Wendell at Smart Bitches Trashy Books and she has talked about not just with me in all my episodes but at other times about how what we're reading or what was big is 
often reflective and I, I you know I have an art history history degree I think this is true through the centuries it's reflective of the world around us it's reflective of our collective unconscious within a certain you know environment it's 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 all of these things and when I say certain environment I mean like political times or if there's wars you know we, things start to have a certain look to them or a feel to them and you know we had had 9-11 happen and so we went from reading a lot of very realistic fiction to you and the Suki Stackhouse books and Twilight and and a lot of these like paranormal themes were coming across in books and so and all of them were including romance in there in some way shape or form I know you said to me earlier that you didn't really see yourself as a paranormal romance writer although I think now I think you're right now though that would absolutely because you were very inclusive you had polyamorous relationships um that would definitely be a title now but then it wasn't you were saying there was no such term as paranormal Mm. paranormal is a a term in edit and and publishing didn't exist i was originally sold as urban fantasy and even urban Mm. fantasy um charles delent had kind of uh spearheaded urban fantasy and i actually was had the first book rejected saying that i should leave urban fantasy to charles delent and and um uh I, I wrote Guilty Pleasures in the late 1980s. Mm. It took over two years to sell. Wow. Nobody, it took two, over two years to sell and then it didn't come out immediately. So in 93, I had, by the first time the first book came out, I had already written either the second book and maybe even the third book by the first time the first one came out. Oh, wow. And um, so, uh, I, you know, I got they didn't know what to do with it because nobody had done it yet. Nobody had mixed. I, I predate Buffy and it just took me that long to sell it uh, because nobody knew what to do with it. Um, so one of the reasons I didn't think of myself as paranormal romance is it didn't exist as a genre. And um, uh, by the time that 9-11 happened, Narcissus and Chains is what came out. My 12th book came out that year. It came out, that was the book that came out for me when 9-11 happened, the year 9-11 happened. And Interesting, okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Charlene Harris, Charlene Harris and I have talked about it, and and um, she's the only one of the people that came up reading me and then wanted to do her own thing, where her vampires were out of the closet too. Almost everybody else who's come up, their vampires are still hidden. But uh, Charlene was a Stucky Stackhouse series, she also had her vampires out of the closet and everything and everybody knew about them. It's been interesting that so few people have decided to do that. I'm glad that you corrected my memory on that. And, and really I'm going off of 20 years. <laughs> like I, my first year as a librarian was very, very early aughts and I was a bookseller before then. So I'm, I thank you for correcting that for me. Um, what I find interesting is that you were really doing that in a time where I don't remember if it was out there, I don't remember it in the, in the eighties and nineties. And so what happened? What was going on? Where did this story come from? I mean, I'm sure you've said this before in other interviews, but I am now fascinated. Um, I, one of the reasons I had over 200 rejections on guilty pleasures because nobody knew what to do with it because there was nothing out there like, like it. And, um, so what happened was that I moved to Los Angeles out of college and uh, went from 30,000 people being a big city to Los Angeles. 
So I was incredibly lonely. And um, my first husband had, had followed for his job because his degree was much more marketable than English and biology. Um, and I went to the library a lot and I found hard-boiled detective fiction for the first time. And I read uh, the Robert B. Parker Spencer series and that led me to Dashiell Hammett and um, Philip Marlowe and um, Sue Grafton's Kenzie Mahoney series and uh, Sarah Paratesky's uh, V.I. Warskowski series. Apologies for the mispronunciation on that one. Um, and one of the interesting things to me on hard-boiled detective fiction, as I read more of it, is that the, the men got to cuss, mm. got to kill people, got to have an active sex life, and they didn't feel bad about it. Right. And no apologies. The women, on the other hand, had no sex life, or it was discreetly off stage. They didn't really get to cuss much. And if they killed somebody, they had to feel really, really bad about it. Mm-hmm. And I decided that this was unfair. And I wanted to create a character that could even the playing field. And that's where Anita Blake comes from. She comes from, in part, trying to, to do a hardball detective female that could, could be as tough as the men. I overcompensated. I admit that. But then that's me. I then thought I thought I would be bored with straight mystery. Mm-hmm. I thought if it was just mystery, I have loved uh, I have loved horror movies and ghost stories and things like that since I was a little girl. So I thought, well, how about adding them together? Yeah. And so I did. I thought it would give me enough toys that I would be having fun with every book. I thought it would create a big enough world that I wouldn't get bored. And indeed, I haven't, and it did. Um, so that's where Anita came from. And, um, and it was very interesting because, um, I actually had a, a, a important editor in the mystery field at a major house. She made me promise to never tell who she was with this story. When the Anita series was still under 10 books, she came to me at a convention and she says, I love this series. She says, I love it. I said, thank you. I was so flattered, you know? And she says, but you know, you get to do things with women in your series because it's horror. Mm -hmm. And she says, we're still not allowed to do this in mystery. They tell us, no, we have to reject books and they still take it out. And um, that's been a while, but I still think there are things that horror, having horror added to the mystery allowed me to do things and break rules that I couldn't have done if I hadn't mixed it together with genre. And that really gave me the freedom to, to have the violence that, that the crimes needed. Not gratuitous. I don't do gratuitous violence. And I don't do gratuitous sex. I do what is necessary for the scene. But if you're going to have sex, I, I just don't understand it. If you're, I see writers that pay more attention to the violence than the sex. You, why? What sense does it make that you write the violence more details than the sex? It means you're American is what it means, actually. But um, so the genres have really helped me not get trapped in any genre by mixing them together. And that's been a real gift because nobody's ever told me no. I, I eventually reached a point where I, they questioned it. And, um, and, then, and then, then the next one hit number one and they were fine. Yeah. Well, you, you 
tapped into something. I mean, it, and, and it's funny whenever people find the thing that taps into something we didn't know we needed. Like more recently right now, uh, you know, Travis Baldry has tapped into our need for a cozy fantasy, like orcs running a tea shop or a coffee shop. And, you know, it's, it's going crazy. And when we look back, there's a history of this kind of thing, but for whatever yes. reason right now, it, it's something we needed. And clearly you did that too. Yes. Um, and so many people imitate others. Right. And, and they try to do thanks to self-publishing. You really can catch a trend in traditional publishing. It can take two years for your book to come out. By the time you get it out, the trend is gone, but self-publishing means people can jump on that bandwagon and write it immediately. But you can always tell you can always tell if it's not what their heart wants to write. They're just writing it to catch the bandwagon. They can even be popular and make money at it, right. but but they get tired of it faster mm -hmm. because it's not their dream. It's not what they wanted to write. But when you are writing the thing we didn't know we needed, and it is something you're passionate about, as it is for Travis, as this was for you, you've got 30 books of, of Anita Blake. So clearly- yes there's a magic there, you know, that it wasn't like a one-off or a phase because you have, you just turned in book 30. I know. Um, my first book ever, Night Seer, was more traditional elves, dwarves, and dragons. It was uh, Tolkien meets Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan. And the first book was one of four. They bought the first book and then the first one didn't sell well enough and they didn't want the other three. They didn't want the next book. When I got the Anitas, the first contract was for three books. And I remember being so thrilled because I said, they'll at least be three. Yeah. And, and I never dreamed that I would be, you know, 30 years later, turning in book 30. And you guys are going to get, and, and I thought it was really important for the 30th anniversary for Anita to have two Anita books. I did it. I pulled it off and I am very happy with it. The book I just turned in, who shall remain nameless for now, that is loudest in my head. Smolder, which I turned in months ago, I'm. I, it's going to be interesting to see if I I can behave myself and not <laughs> talk about the wrong book because that was turned in like two days ago. Um, but um, uh, on the cozy fantasy, uh, the one that I read and really enjoyed uh, was. Uh, Kingfisher last name. Oh, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. the, the, the wizard's guide to defensive baking. I'm listening to that right now. It, it is so clever. It is. It is delightful. It is delightful. Yes. And, and it's a delightful world, but I've read now three of three of their books and they're set in the same world because the same magic system and everything. And, um, and really, uh, really have enjoyed it. Uh, uh, a Minor Mage is a smaller book, and it's a 12-year-old boy who's who and, and following around with his, his talking armadillo uh, familiar. Oh, yes. Yes. And um, then, uh, anyway, so yes, it's a lovely trend. I love, I love cozy mysteries. If it, yes. Because they're so different from what I write. I often get just as far away as I can. So a cozy mystery is about as far away, but the cozy fantasies, I'm really enjoying them because I love fantasy and I love cozy mysteries. So it's just, it's perfect, right? 
I'm having a great time. I'm listening to that, you know, T Kingfisher now. And when I was talking to Travis, I, I started thinking back on other ones that I liked. And I mean, there's some Neil Gaiman stories that are some of my favorite stories. And, and I thought those are cozy, miss like cozy fantasy, like chivalry. It's a short story. And it's, they transformed it into a graphic novel. I've had that story. I mean, I have it practically memorized because it was in a very early 90s collection of his. And I've read it a million times. And it's just. It's so... it's 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 sort of Miss Marple does does fantasy. Yes. And it's wonderful. I mean, so it's just kind of interesting to see like how the ebbs and flows of things. However, another big thing that and it's apropos to you and your work. Another big thing that's been huge the last couple of years and going back to what you were saying about self-publishing, making it possible. When I talked with Travis about this, it was interesting to talk about how self-publishing is now setting the trends in some way, because now publishers are looking at what's popular, like they did with him, like they did with Ice Planet Barbarians and some other titles and going, oh, well, we'll buy that. Even after it's sold a ton of copies as an independently published book, and, yep. and then they sign the author after the fact. It's very interesting how that's working. I have now been in publishing for over 30 years because 30 years is just when I my career really started in a big way, but I was in it for a few years before that. And it has completely changed. Self-publishing to this degree has completely turned it on its ear in so many ways. Uh, because when I first started, if you self-published, it was the kiss of death. No one would touch you. Right. And now it's another way to discover talent. Yes. And there are hybrid, author, hybrid authors who are partially self-published and partially traditionally published. And um, you know, a lot of them will do traditional publishing and the books that are too out there or were too out there for traditional publishing, they'll publish themselves. More and more, they're not having to do that because traditional publishing is going, oh, these sell. What's been wild too are the ones that I've seen where they started with traditional publishers even big fives yep. and then said, okay, I've now got the name recognition. I'm going to be entirely self-pub from here on out because then they set all of the rules, um, which has been really interesting. Like Gail Carriger um, and, and some others, I, Courtney Milan, I think has done both. Um, but it's just been really interesting to watch those who will start in traditional publishing and then, and then just go independent after they have the name recognition. Yeah. Um, some really big names. Um, uh, I believe Dean Koontz has gone. Yes. And, uh, I mean, it's not small names anymore. Well, you have control. It's faster. You know, it's definitely faster. The biggest um, thing though is, is you have nobody to do your marketing for you. You have to do your marketing yourself and, and that can take up, um, I have friends that do that do uh, self-publishing and marketing your own stuff takes a lot of time and energy. I mean, I don't know how some I don't know how some of them turn out books as fast as they do and still keep up with marketing. I know that's a whole actually a skill set that um, some, you know, whenever I would go to conferences and stuff, I mean, there are definitely people who that's what they do is they market the books for other people, but they're independent. Um, so that's like a, I mean, if you're a big enough name like Dean Koontz, I guess you can hire them out. <laughs> to do I, that for I, you. I guess you can, but here's the interesting thing. Like one of the things that social media has done is that when I first started out, 
if I got a, a mean letter, Somebody was unhappy with me. They had to mail it to my publisher who would then put it to my agent. And then my agent would decide if I saw it. Oh, now, wow. Now I'm on Twitter. Yeah. If, if somebody wants to say something to me, I'm on the front lines. I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm on, I'm on TikTok. I, I do have uh, somebody, I, I do have a media minion, her choice of job title. She likes that. She said, can you, can you call me your media minion? I said, if, yes, you can be my media minion. And she does Facebook and Instagram. I will get on Instagram because I used to love the pretty, pretty pictures. Now everybody's doing video. But, but um, she does those two and, and posts for that. But I do TikTok. I do Twitter. And, and so if somebody says something to you and is trying to be mean, they, say it to you, they can say it to your face, quote unquote. And um now i've handled that i've handled that it's just like you know uh but it's just so different yeah. it's so different than it was and um on TikTok, you know suddenly people care what a writer looks like suddenly you're you're an entertainer in a way that as a writer i valued that I could that I could not worry about makeup or hair or anything and just come to my desk and uh, social media began to change that. Uh, I remember the series had just hit really popular and I was writing towards a deadline and this is uh, and I needed a research book and they had it at my local. It's this long ago. Uh, there was there were still um, uh, Barnes and Noble. The one that we orders, orders, there's still a borders. And <laughs> yeah. so I had no makeup on, put my hair back. I was writing. I had put on a pair of boat shoes, went to pick up my book and go, saw somebody from the local cons who was a, a fan and he was very nice to my face. And before I got back home, he'd gotten online saying how terrible I looked. <gasps> oh my gosh. And I remember thinking, well, now I know, no, you're not nice, no matter how nice you are to my face. So now I know. And so it was starting like that. It's, it's interesting that I've kind of worked with people and trained up the fans that I don't care. I don't care. I, you, it's important what I do. Right. It's not what I look like. I clean up well, and that's a plus, but it's not about appearance sake. It's what I can do. It bugged me early in the day, and now I just go, you know, I it's what I can do. I don't owe I don't owe you full camera ready makeup because I ran to get an errand for a book to write to a, right. a research book. It's difficult. So, it is difficult. I mean, as a woman, I can tell you, it is difficult to to navigate that because you know, and I'm 49. I have my witchy gray streak, and I'm embracing it. I've decided to just you know enjoy my you know the way it comes in embrace the crone if you will <laughs> I, I have been in, i i i was at a uh I, i'm wicked that is my path of faith mm -hmm. and i was at an event 20 years ago i think now and they were doing made mother and crone they wanted volunteers from the event to do made mother crone and i just put my little i went crone i call crone <laughs> oh crone i hated maiden energy when i was one and isn't it nice to be able to just say, ah, I'm, I'm settling into that now. Here I am. <laughs> I don't like the bum shoulder part of it, but I do like, you know, there's a, like a freedom to 
just saying, all right, well, this is, I mean, it, 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 going back to the obligations you were saying about appearance, like we can enjoy and, and be as dressed up as we want or whatever, but there is something about being this age that affords us the ability to say, mm, no, I'm not going to spend $200 to get my hair colored. Or if I don't want to, if you want to, fabulous and you can do it great but if, if you don't want to there's just something about it because one of the things that I liked going back to Anita Blake in the early years in fact in the very first book I mean and she's certainly not a crone there but she's not an ingenue either she's you know 24. She's 24. I mean but you picked a woman who is already well versed well, and very dark job here's here's the thing um I was never an ingenue I may have looked like one, but, but that was, uh, you know, my mother died when I was six. My father was out of the picture by the time I was six months old. I was raised by my grandmother who was abused by my grandfather for over 20 years. And so her, her, to say she had a dark view of the world is, is kind. And so I was not, I was not raised to embrace that kind of energy. Growing up, my lesson was you were either food or you were you were the prayer predator, and I preferred to be predator, and and so I you had a lot of attitude in a very small package that happened to look as I had more than one man trying to date me over the years, especially when I was younger. They said you're perfect till you open your mouth. Oh my goodness. I mean, even I, who, who was not a big talker, you know, uh, I mean, I joined the debate team in high school and that sort of changed things a little bit. <laughs> I was, I was on, I was on, we didn't have debate, but I was on speech team as well. Same idea. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I did that because I had been an introvert and I had been shy and it was like the one thing I can do to make myself overcome it is just submerge <laughs> myself. And that's what I did. I did the same thing. I was painfully shy, painfully shy at 14. At 15, I decided that I would join speech and I would uh, join theater in my high school. And I would either cure me or kill me. And it cured me. I, I got over my stage fright eventually. And I did traveled with the speech team. And, and it was the best thing I could have done because it I looked at other people in my family because shyness is often genetic. I looked at some people in my family and I thought, I don't want to pass up opportunities because I'm too scared socially. And it's a skill. It's a skill that you use for job interviews. It's, a, I mean, I used it as a teacher. I used it as a librarian. You know, I use it in the podcast. It's, it's amazing how many different ways, you know, speech and skills. Can <laughs> Yes, yes. I love knowing that about you because that is also a very Anita thing to do too. It's like, even when there's fear, she's going to go in. Well, bravery does not exist without fear. Yeah. You can be courageous without being afraid, but to be brave, you must first be afraid and move forward in the face of that fear. And um, it's been interesting how many readers over the years have told me that they didn't know that. They thought they were afraid. Of, of being in, talking in front of people or confronting somebody that was was being horrible to them and they thought because they were afraid they couldn't do it and through the Anita books they learned that no true courage true courage means that you're afraid and you do it anyway to know that you've contributed to somebody else being able to do that is a big deal I did not know that everybody didn't know that though I grew up knowing that mm -hmm. and and 
Um, I have had so many women, oh, I'm gonna tear up here. I had so many women uh, when I, you, you know, you do the, the signings and before people had ticketed signings where you'd sign everything, people would come up and I have had so many women over the years, they lean in and they whisper and they say, I left an abusive relationship because I knew Anita wouldn't take it. Oh my God. That's such a I big know. I know. I am. And, and I just, I, I'm so proud of that. Yes. I mean, you start out writing your stories and you don't, you never are quite sure how they'll affect people. And um, the fact that I write positively about Polly and the BDSM community. Yes. And I'm part of the community that helps. One of my pet peeves is people that write about BDSM that don't know shit about it. I'm grabbing a book because I'm going to show it to you. I've interviewed this author and she is um, a person that has also tried to break down those barriers because she's also part of the community. Can you see it's called On Good Authority? I can see it. And it's a coming of age, actually. And it talks about like what it's this beautiful Victorian Gothic novel um, that really am it's a kink positive novel. It's gorgeous. There's actually not any sex on the page. It's literally about the the psychological and the and the consent and the culture and all of this beautiful, beautiful stuff uh, with it. And this is her debut. Um, so okay. Brianna Unima Gunkin, if you want to look out for that. Um, okay. I did interview her earlier and people were like, oh, I want that novel because it did things differently than maybe some other novels in the past that try to address BDSM you couldn't write about heterosexual sex like that. People would complain. Mm -hmm. I think when it's one of those things, when people are appropriate, it's appropriation that can cause harm. If, yes. You know, and that's where, that's one of the reasons why it was very important for Brianna to be very honest and very like, I want people to understand like what, what we might be doing, you know, and why, why we might be interested. And, and it's so beautiful. I think you'll really like it. Okay. Um, I first started researching BDSM. I wasn't a part of the community. Um, cause my first marriage was monogamous and very straight ish. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a definition there's no straight definition for for what's traditional on that but very traditional and um so i went to research it and um i you know you go in with all these misconceptions but i researched it the way i researched guns or anything else for my books and i found a friend who i trusted who found somebody to be my guide and um and and i would have gotten everything so wrong had i not gone and 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 talk to people and 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 experience it and of course i find that what i'm interested in my books is often what i'm interested in my imagination gets there first the rest of me comes along and it was the same way for poly it was the same way for bdsm it's interesting about that and um that that the imagination goes first and every once in a while i i'll get a new thing that i'm writing i'll go mm, okay i wonder if that's coming too mm -hmm. uh but but I went from researching and doing a good job without being a part of the community to then becoming part of the community. And, uh, but even when I wasn't, I still researched it and people caught, people were so grateful that I did my research. Uh, it did lead to interesting, interesting things though. 
interesting propositions from fans. Well, speaking of fans, Jessica Teat, who is writing from Oklahoma, and she's listening to you from Oklahoma, wanted to know uh, what your thoughts were on the recent rise in polyamorous relationships in pop culture. So more TV, more movies, uh, more books are showing representation of polyamorous relationships. And she wanted to know your thoughts on that since you were very much uh, one of the original people to break through that barrier. Um, I think it's I think it's great and it's an acknowledgement that there are more ways to love and more ways to live successfully. Um, you know, uh, the fact that everybody is trying to fit everybody into one box with two people, even people who are not poly for their romance or sex, um, you're not just having the two of you you have best friends, you have other people, if you don't have help, if you don't have extended family to help with your childcare, you, polyamory is really what everyone's doing, except that those of us who are polyamorous do the romance and sex part of it as polyamorous as well. We're not meant to live just, just uh, this little nuclear family idea is so recent, and most people don't understand how recent that is. Um, but polyamory, for, for me, is my sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And um, and others, it's a lifestyle, and everybody can use their own word. But to be able to be happy loving more people and to be able to be happy with your partners being with other people as well as you, I think you just have to be oriented that way. I think it is a sexual orientation. And um, it's been interesting because when I first started it, it was like, no, but it was like everybody didn't know what I was talking about. And now it is, it's proliferated, but you have to represent. And one of the reasons that um, I asked my husband and our partners if I could be open about being poly was because I was thought it was important to show you could be a successful person and still be polyamorous. Yeah, I mean, Neil Gaiman is a very famous uh, polyam, you know, he and I, I mean, I know they've recently divorced, but his wife were very open about their polyamory. And, um, you know, and I think it's the same idea as as far as, you know, for them, it was very important to be forward. And these are all things that have always been there. But whether or not they were on the surface in regular everyday culture um, was a very different story. And so it was like, now we're seeing them in romance novels, like that you can buy at Barnes and Noble, including yours, like not just yours, but other people too. Yeah. Rebel Carter is another very popular author who has not only done BDSM representation, but she does polyamory. I mean, her most famous series is a polyamorous relationship and it and it takes place in a town um like in the 19th century where like everybody there it you know is it a minimum of threesome you know mm -hmm. so and it, and she's very thoughtful and it's very smart and interest it, it's it's a barrier you broke through you know and now we're seeing more of it well and i am happy to 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 break those barriers and to and to make it okay again though had i been writing in one genre, had I been writing just romance. Romance is not as strict as mystery, but I couldn't have broken these barriers in mystery at that time. I In romance, I don't know if I could have either, but because I was mixed genre, I could forge ahead and nobody told me no. Nobody told me you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, I think I had you or remember seeing your books in 
uh, sci-fi fantasy, but now I think I see them in romance. I'll, I'll double check, uh, you know, whenever I'm in the store or something, I, I, as far as like where, where I've found, where historically I have found Laurel Hamilton books. One of the interesting things is that I was considered horror when I first came out. It makes sense though. Yeah, it it does. But anything with vampires at that time, uh, Charlene Harris and I were both shelved in horror science fiction fantasy. And um, then other people came up and they were shelved in romance. And so you had people in the romance that never went over to the other side. And so you got this divide between people who would find paranormal romance in the fantasy, science fiction, horror, but they didn't go to the romance. Now people know to look back and forth. But at first there was this divide on where are you standing in the bookstore and who are you reading? One of the reasons that I broke the barrier and had Anita have sex, full-blown sex on screen, uh, finally, was because I had somebody come up at a signing with me. Mm-hmm. And bef- and they said, it's so interesting that you're having the horror trope where the virgin survives. Okay. If you have sex and you're a bad girl, you got killed in the slasher fix. That's like, exactly right. Yeah. And so he, they said, "I'm so it's so interesting that you're staying with that trope. I wasn't staying with that trope, not on purpose. Mm-hmm. Anita was just, uh, was just, not somebody who who was casual um i think the term now is aromantic mm. is that the term that you have to have an emotional connection with somebody to feel sexual attraction um when i was when i was first dating that was just called normal or at least they were what we were told we were supposed to feel if that makes any sense yeah um so i didn't realize that 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 needing an emotional connection you want to have sex with somebody was actually that unusual apparently it was because i get told that all the time but um one of the reasons anita anita finally crosses the barrier and has sex uh not just dating not just flirting is because i went no no i don't mean that the good girl survives and the bad girls die that's that's horrible so you can think that one fan at a signing for wow. me finally going well we're gonna bite that bullet because no no you you do not have to stay virginal to survive in in my world that just really shocked me that people would think that was what i was doing um and and so one of the reasons that the sexual element entered was that i that you don't have to be the good girl right and whatever that means anymore tell me i can't do something or tell me i'm not doing something and give me the different and you think you know why i'm doing it and it's not why i'm doing it I'll often go against that and do it anyway. Um, it took me years of therapy to realize that reacting to people like that is still giving them control. So that now, if I want to do something, I do, but I don't do it in reaction to people as much as I did. Well, uh, something that kind of, you know, might unsettle that other person as well. Uh, Nanny Udall from New Mexico says, Uh, that Laurel K. Hamilton opened the door. She sent me this to tell you, by the way. Um, She opened the door for me to shed imposter syndrome of compulsive heterosexuality. She was the grown-up version of Judy Bloom for me. Aww. (laughs) I thought you'd like that. compliment. Oh, great version of Judy Bloom for you. I love that. That's great. I thought that was awesome. (laughs) That is a great compliment. And I have had so many women... And, uh, and some men actually say that the books have freed them up to, to be who they are. 
somebody asked me recently, the, what are the big changes between book one and, and smolder? And I said, well, she's still Episcopalian and Christian, but she started off looking for Mr. Right and being monogamous, and now she's polyamorous and she is engaged to be married. But in the first book, it ends with, I don't date vampires, I kill them. And she believed that. She believed that killing vampires was not murder because they were, they were soulless and monstrous. And now here we are engaged to be married to a vampire. And it has been, it has been a wide arc of, of changes for her, of going from that black and white thinking of your 20s. What's true about who you are and how the world works? And then you go through that, go through your 30s when you're starting to figure it out and go through your 40s. And as you get older, that's one of the things you, you know yourself more. And um, like so many people say, you know, have a midlife crisis. Well, you, I find that people who don't have midlife crises, I didn't have one, are people that uh, know who they are mm -hmm. and they have owned that. And if you've, if you're happy with your choices, happy with what you've done, you don't have that crisis at midlife. Midlife crises are based on the fact that you're going, time is running out and I haven't done stuff. Right. Right. No, I agree. And, and Anita is still in her, in her early thirties. She's 31 or 32 in this one. And, um, so yes, one of the reasons she ages so much slower is I read an essay by Agatha Christie when I was impressionable in like in high school and she wished she had not made uh miss marple and hercule perot as old as they were oh my gosh and I to find this i took that so to heart that that's well i all my characters should be exactly my age for the longest time like when i was 12 and a half the first story i tried to write 12 and a half protagonists mm -hmm. at 14 the protagonist was 14 when i finished my first story uh, I was 24 when I sat down to write Anita, so she was 24. And so, but but I purposely decided she would have many adventures and she would age slower because I took that advice to heart from Agatha Christie. Now, here I am, and she's still in her early 30s. As so many people have said, I started write, reading the series when I was like, you know, 13, 14, 15, and now I'm older than Anita. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it. The first book is came out in 1993. So it has pagers in it. It has technology that if you were raised with an iPhone and, and everything, yeah. you're going to go, what the heck is this? And so she was saying, you know, just think of it as a history lesson, but love the books. You really want to read them. And I'm going to, so I made a note, I'm going to make a TikTok going, okay, there are pagers. Yes, there was no iPhone. This is you know, so uh, forgive me, but there's no way I can update the tech. The mystery doesn't even work with the tech today because it's hard to isolate people. I think it's funny when that you're saying that because there's a lot of people since Gilmore Girls has been on Netflix that have gone and discovered Gilmore Girls. And it's been 20 years, over yeah. 20 years since that show has come out. And they had pagers and answering machines and CDs and all of this stuff. And I'm like, Lane would actually probably have less of a difficult time now because she'd be able to have all her music on Spotify instead what? of hiding in floorboards, you know? <laughs> uh, my, yeah, it, it's, it's so interesting it's so interesting how fast things have changed. I know. But, but yes, I'm going to do a TikTok. I made it on my list of to-do for a TikTok going, okay, there are pagers, but, and, and so you have to, if you're, 
if you don't know what a pager is and you're reading along, and I also have Anita having to find a, uh, a public phone booth at one point in Guilty Pleasures in the early books. Yes. And, oh my gosh. And, and you just don't think about it. And so this is different. This is different. And uh, at one point in the books, even though she hasn't aged much very fast, I I made the the decision to update the tech without explanation. Okay. I was like, because are you slowly creeping into historical fiction? No, I, I am. I am. No, I just totally updated the tech at one point with no explanation. But there's a long um, there's a long uh, history of this in mystery series, long running mystery series. It's traditional that you will update things and and you will update things as, as time goes along, but your your main protagonist, your, your detective doesn't age. Uh, the Neural Wolf books do this as well uh, by Rex Stout. So I just went, okay, okay. Um, you know, I didn't think the tech would update this quickly. None of us did because I says, I have to do the math now. I have to redo the math because Anita is me. That's, that's my mindset. But now because she's aging so slowly and I am doing normal aging, we, I, I'm going, okay. It's like, I'm trying to remember like, like cartoons I watched as a child, I can't reference them as much for her. Mm. Now she could have seen them in reruns or on the cartoon channel, but I am between the boomers and, and Gen X. I'm like right on the border and uh, I'm certainly more Gen X than boomer. But um, so, but Anita, I've been doing the math and I'm going, she's still, she's a millennial. By now. Yeah. At this point, I guess she would be because you still have her in whatever time we're in. Yeah. She, I've updated my tech. She's 30, she's 32 or 30, she's 31 or 32 in this book. So she's a millennial. Huh. Has anybody commented on this? No. I do have another, before we go, I have another listener uh, think question for you. Um, and this has been a long time fan, like 30 years, like right from the get-go. Uh, Maverick, who is here in Austin, Texas. Maverick wants you to, or wants to ask, what is your favorite moment of any of your books that has been edited out before publishing? And do you, will you find space for it in another book? Um, no, there will not be space for it, but in book five, um, Bloody Bones, when we go to Branson, go, go near Branson, Missouri for that book, I actually had a big chunk of the book where we went to Branson, where we took Larry is with us and Larry Kirkland. And when he's a young animator, just learning the business and we go to Branson and we meet we meet the stalking horse because we the scary vampire is the real master of Branson, but the stalking horse who pretends to be the master and, and everything is a, is a female country singer, like, like old school frilled sequined outfit, the big hat, the big hair, everything. And uh, there's a whole sequence in Branson that I wrote where Larry is a fan of country music and so he gets to meet and and the master of the city is this country singer who's been a, a top of the charts in country singing for decades of course because she doesn't age and i had this whole section where we actually got to see branson missouri on stage with vampires in among the country music and they made me cut it they made me cut all of it because the book was too long and at that time 
I, I wasn't a big enough name. Um, I was just starting to hit my stride with book five, but I wasn't a big enough name at that point to be able to push through for a bigger book than I was contracted for. And also I didn't have an agent. I was still with my first agent and I didn't have an agent that could fight for me and negotiate and for me and talk to people for me in New York. Uh, so that, that, getting to go to Branson in Anita's world and getting to meet the country singer sequined cowgirl outfit who was the master of Branson, that whole thing where we got to go to Branson in Anita's world had to be cut. I regret that. I regretted it at the time and it made me very sad to cut it. But they said that, you know, the rest of the book is so scary and so atmospheric and so, and so the, the editor that I had at the time felt that it was distracting from the gritty reality of the rest of the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe she's right, but I still was sad that I had to cut this section where we got to go to Branson. Well, maybe you could put that on the blog one day. It's already written. So I have no idea where it is now. Oh, no, that's. <laughs> That's computers and computers ago. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and back in the day, I didn't think that I would be famous enough anyone would care. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, the book was done. Yeah. So I didn't keep my, my detrius. Um, after that, somewhere around book six and up, I started keeping an outtakes folder. Oh, okay. Very nice. And because it's a, it's a, it's a series. And one of the things about a series is if you don't get it in one book, you have a chance to recycle and use it in another book. Um, so Larry couldn't go anymore because he works with the FBI and he has his own life, but, but it would still be fun to have gone to Branson and be able to see all that. Well, I think that there's a lot of people that want to thank you. And like you, you know, Nani did when she talks about shedding imposter syndrome of, of compulsive heterosexuality, you've given us 30 years of growth, 30 years of scares, 30 years of, you know, time, like people reflecting different people in books. And it's just been a wonderful adventure. I'm so, so happy for you that you've been around and writing for 30 years. And you know, that's exciting. And congratulations. That is a big accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. I, it, it really is. I am, I am absolutely thrilled. And, and I have to say, I did that first contract the first couple I did not I did not know I would get the opportunity to write what I wanted to write to explore Anita in her world for this long it's it's amazing to me well and your fans are delighted again it's comfort and you know they're so thankful and I am so thankful for your time you've been with me for two hours now <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, wow, she was so good. You gave me so many things to work with. On a side note, I will not, this will not be a two hour episode. I will be editing it down. Okay. Okay. But, yeah. But it, I mean, you were, you're so rich with, with all that you have to offer and thank you. And we look forward to many more years of Anita. Well, thank you. And you're welcome. And yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I, I, one of the things I do at the end of each book is I write the beginning of the next book while the voice is strong. There will be more. Thanks for joining me today on She Wore Black. 
if you like what you heard and want to support my work on the show, you can visit my website at SheWoreBlackPodcast.com for links to my coffee shop, donation site, as well as my online bookshop. You can also help out the show by rating me on Apple and following me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and letting your friends know about the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and happy reading. Thank you.